0: Most of you know at least some of the writings, devotions, and lectures of Ravi Zacharias. Well, he told a story about um, a personal uh, translator that he had, that he worked in. He was a missionary to Vietnam in 1971, and that year he traveled all over Vietnam with a guy by the name of Hien Pham, and uh, really drew into a close relationship with this gentleman. Well, then he had to leave and came back to North America and did not hear anything from Hien, and he assumed that he must have been either captured or killed or something had happened to him. Well, 17 years later, he got a call out of the blue from Hien, and as soon as the first two words on the phone came out, Brother Ravi, uh, he instantly recognized who it was, and they had an exciting conversation catching up on old times. Well, apparently, uh, Hien had been... Uh, captured, put into prison for his cooperation with Americans uh, because of his translation activities for the missionaries. And he was subjected to intense brainwashing and indoctrination. Every day for years, they were pumping atheistic propaganda into him until finally he began to question whether God existed. He began to wonder. And he one day said, well, I'm just going to have an experiment. Tomorrow, I'm not going to pray. Well, as it happened, the next day that he was not going to pray, uh, he was assigned the dreaded chore of cleaning the filthy uh, latrines in the prison. And let me pick up the story with Ravi's own words. As he cleaned out a tin can overflowing with toilet paper, his eye caught what seemed to be English printed on one piece of paper. He hurriedly grabbed it, washed it, and after his roommates had retired that night, he retrieved the paper and read the words, Romans chapter 8, trembling, he began to read, and we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him. For I am convinced that nothing shall be able to separate us. Actually, this is happy every time I practiced it. (laughs) Not something to weep over. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He and wept. He knew his Bible and knew that there was not a more relevant passage For one on the verge of surrender, he cried out to God asking forgiveness, for this was to have been the first day that he would not pray. After finding the scripture, he then asked the commander if he could clean the latrines regularly, because he discovered that some official was using a Bible as toilet paper. Each day, he then picked up a portion of scripture, cleaned it off, and added it to his collection of nightly reading. What his tormentors were using for refuse, the scriptures, could not be more treasured to Hien. Eventually, he was released from prison and fled to Thailand. Today, he is a businessman in the United States, a radiant Christian, and a living testimony to God's Word and its transforming power. And that's going to be the subject for today's uh, sermon, the incredible transforming power that the Word of God Uh, has in our lives. And once you understand how powerful this word is, I think you will treasure it just as much as he ended. You'll do anything to get it. Now, this whole verse speaks of the power of God's word. In the English, it doesn't come across quite as clearly. It seems like there's two subjects, being commended to God and being commended to God's word. But as C.K. Barrett explains in his commentary, this is an example of hendia dioin a special form of grammar where two parts of a phrase represent one concept. Now we don't really have exactly the same thing in English. In my English major, we studied a similar concept in Shakespeare's plays. Not quite the same, but similar. Um, For example, in Macbeth, Shakespeare uses the line sound and fury as an expression that's a lot more colorful than saying furious sound. Another author says... The kingdom and the power and the glory from the Lord's Prayer extends the principle, transforming the idea of a glorious, powerful kingdom into a sequence of three nouns joined by conjunctions. And that is similar to what's going on in the Greek here. Let me give you one more definition of this grammar. And this one comes from a kind of Hendia Dioin in Shakespeare's play Hamlet. George Wright says, We frequently join adjectives on the pattern of nice and warm, good and loud, big and fat, sick and tired, long and leggy. Each of these pairs represents a single concept in which the general idea contained in the first adjective is explained or specified or opened up by the second, and insofar as such expressions may be continually invented, the pattern seems the closest thing to adjectival hendiedis in English." Now, that's a big grammar lesson, but uh, what's the bottom line? So what? What difference does it make? Well, the, the commentary points out that the phrase, I commend you to God, is exactly the same as the phrase, I commend you to the word of his grace. The two are linked together. It goes on to say this In fact, it is the word of God, God in his word, who is able to build up the elders themselves and the church that they serve. And so what the grammar is indicating here is you cannot separate God from His Word because God uses His Word to accomplish His purposes, and you cannot separate the Word from God because the Word is an attribute of God. It's an aspect of His very being. God always backs up every letter of His Word to accomplish His purposes. You can't just look at this as a, okay, an interesting book of literature off of a printing press Every word that is in this Bible is God Himself speaking. And the words that are proclaimed from this Bible have just as much power as God did when He spoke and the stars came into existence. And He spoke and He said, let there be light, and there was light. Every phrase in this verse here is describing the power of God's Word. Now, in the Greek of the first clause especially, it's really talking about like what we read in Hebrews where he says that the Word of God is living. Why? Because God is living. The Word of God is living. It is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. So I want to break this verse down. Paul says, "...so now, brethren, the ones who were being commended to the Word of grace had already been conquered by that Word. Uh, They'd been turned from enemies into brethren." So when Paul came into Ephesus... He was constantly preaching the Word, the whole Word, and nothing but the Word. Why? Well, it was because he knew that his own opinion, his own testimony is not sufficient. It can illustrate, but it's not sufficient to convert. It's the Word of God alone that has the power to regenerate and to give new life and to transform a people from the inside out. Uh, as Psalm 19 words that "...the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul." And then he gives other powerful aspects of that Word. Now, we don't often think of the Bible as having power. We know the Lord's table has power. Some people deny it. They say it's just a memorial. But in 1 Corinthians, it says that when people partake of the Lord's table unworthily, they're eating judgment to themselves. And he says, many of you are weak and sick. You don't even know why. It's because there's power in this table. Some of you have even died, he said. But he also says you can eat... Not just to cursing, you can eat to blessing. And that's primarily what it is. It's a cup of blessing. And there's all kinds of blessings that the Scripture talks about in connection with this. Uh, Even physical, tangible blessings that God gives. Now, we understand that with the Lord's table. We need to see that God's Word has exactly the same kind of power uh, in our lives as well. It's likened to a hammer that breaks resistance, uh, to a fire that purges... Uh, silver, to a a sword that pierces through the toughest defenses. And we need to have a confidence when we speak God's Word in His perfect timing, He can take that Word and He can convert anybody, even a tough old egg like uh, Saul who was persecuting uh, the church. And sometimes that change is instantaneous. You can think of the thief on the cross who was saved. There were two thieves, one on each side of Christ. And at the beginning, the Gospels are clear, both of them... We're blaspheming Jesus, making fun of Jesus, utterly insensitive to the agony that Jesus is going through. But at some point, all of a sudden, God's word penetrates the defenses of one of these people and he is converted and he rebukes the other thief. And he says, we're sinners. He acknowledges his sin and with remorse, he asks Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. I think of the famous story of mutiny on the bounty. It's a fun story. uh, There's a film that's been made on it. But unfortunately, they leave out the the funnest part of the story. Uh, You all know Captain Bly was a tough captain to get along with. And there were mutineers who rebelled. And there's the death penalty on mutineers. So they had to flee somewhere. And uh, they took some captive Tahitians with them, men and women. And uh, they went to the uh, little island of Pitcairn. It's a tiny little dot. And uh, I think it's two miles long, one mile wide. Very, very small uh, island. And they lived there. And the men were so drunken and rowdy that the women and children had to build themselves a fort to protect themselves <laughs> from the men. They just excluded the men out there. After ten years of drinking and fighting with each other, only one man was left alive, John Adams. And uh, there were eleven women and twenty-three children. But what the film does not show is even more remarkable. When there was only one other man left alive on that island, they found a Bible at the bottom of one of the officer's trunks uh, that they had hauled ashore before they burned the ship or sunk the ship. And uh, uh, the other man knew how to read, and John Adams asked him, would you teach me how to read? And so during that last, I think it was about a year or something like that, he was teaching him how to read. Then that man died. John Adams alone is left. And as he read the Scriptures, he was completely transformed, turned upside down. People say he looked like a totally different person. Instead of the fighting, the brawling, and the anger, and all of those things, he was transformed by God's grace. And then he began teaching every person on that island uh, uh, from the Word of God, and everyone there was converted, and they had basically a Christian nation for 150 years. Now, since then, it's become more of a nominally Christian uh, nation, but there was a profound transformation that took, and the only difference was the God of the Bible and the Bible of that God. That's the only difference. There was a power in that Word to transform them. It reconciled John to God. It also reconciled John to the women and to the children. And so here's my encouragement. Don't lose hope with your unsaved relatives and friends. As long as they are exposed to the Word of God, they are vulnerable to that powerful uh, Word of grace. Paul speaks of the Gospel and the Word as the power of God unto salvation. Colossians one eighteen the power of God unto salvation. One of the more remarkable conversions that I heard uh, was of a uh, matinee idol, Alexander Rostov uh, He grew up in the church, but he abandoned that, became an atheist, a Marxist atheist. And uh, in, in this one matinee that they were doing, it was a blasphemous uh, drama uh, entitled Christ in a Tuxedo. I was playing in Moscow... Uh, Russia. He was supposed to read two verses from the Sermon on the Mount and then remove his gown, cry out, give me my tuxedo and top hat, and that would be the cue for the rest of the actors to come in and to begin uh, this play. Well, let me read you what happened. But as he read the words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. He began to tremble. Instead of following the script, he kept reading... From Matthew 5, ignoring the coughs, calls, and foot stamping of his fellow actors. Finally, recalling a verse he had learned in his childhood in a Russian Orthodox church, he cried, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Before the curtain could be lowered, Rostov says, had trusted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. I know... Some of you are very discouraged because you prayed and you've prayed for some of your relatives and you just feel like giving up because they're so ornery in the reactions that they have to the Word and it just seems you can't break through. You can't seem to do anything uh, with your relatives. They seem impervious to the Word of God. Let me assure you, every man, woman, and child born onto planet Earth has been impervious because of the fall. Romans 8, 7 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. And that's been true of every carnal mind that's been born on earth. It cannot be subject to the Word of God until the God of that Word takes the Word and like a scalpel, a spiritual scalpel, He pierces the spiritual chest and He gives a heart transplant. And so we just can't slide over those words, So now, brethren... Uh, what he's indicating is that many miracles have been going on in the last three years as the power of God's Word converted people and transformed them. There's a second thing that we see about God's Word in verse 32. Paul said, I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace. Now, the word's... I commend you, carry the idea of entrusting to the protection of someone or something. And so this speaks of the protective power that the Scriptures have. Let me read you some dictionary definitions of this word. First dictionary, to entrust for safekeeping. Second dictionary, to entrust someone to the care or protection of someone. Third dictionary, to deposit as a trust or for protection. Now I think these Ephesians could understand how Paul could entrust them to the care of God, how does he entrust them to the care of the Scriptures? How do the Scriptures protect uh, people from uh, from anything? And again, it's important that you realize you cannot separate God from His Word. John Frame points out that the Scriptures uh, describe themselves with every attribute that's given to God. Why? Because it is God Himself that is speaking. He backs up His Word. Of course Romans 10:8 says that the word must be in our mouth and in our heart we must make a profession or confession with our mouths of that word for that word to have its power and effect. And I've seen this in dealing with demons. You know, demons not going to flee just cuz you bring out a Bible, you know, and you hold it up against them. They're not scared of the book per se. But as you take that Scripture, the Scriptures of Christ's victory over the demonic, and you speak that against the demons, they have to leave. You see that with the way Jesus handled demons. He didn't just confront them. He confronted them with the Word of God. Get behind me, Satan, for it is written. And he would bring the Word and Satan would have to leave. This is why Revelation 12 speaks of a verbal affirmation of the Word against Satan. It says, "...they overcame him." That's referring to Satan. "...they overcame him." by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. Scripture has to become our testimony before it becomes an effective sword in our hands. Let me give you a, a, a scripture to back this up. Another one. Jeremiah 23, 28-29 through 29 says, "...He who has My word, let him speak My word faithfully. Is it not My word like a fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces?" He speaks of the incredible power that the Word of God has, but He indicates that that power is manifested only as we faithfully speak that Word. Our speaking of the Word by faith is bringing into space-time history the things that God has prepared for us. So when we speak the Word, it's actually God speaking It's His Word that He is speaking. We are, as Peter says, speaking as the oracles of God. And so it has a power when we're faithfully speaking it. So, with that as a background, it's not surprising to see that the Bible is said to protect us from every imaginable kind of trouble. Psalm 119.11 says, When we hide the Word of God in our heart, heart, it protects us from sinning. Verse 25 says it protects us from backsliding. Verse 28 says it protects us from discouragement. Verse 50 says it gives us life. Verse 105 says it protects us from stumbling. But the Scriptures also indicate that just as there are physical ramifications, health, disease, death, from the Lord's table, there is physical protection that God's Word brings into our lives as well. There are judgments as well, but let me just give you some examples. Second Peter 3, verse 7 says, the only thing that is keeping this world, uh, that is, as it were, it, preserving this world, and keeping it from burning up right now with an intense heat of God's judgment, are the promises of the Scripture. Wow! The promises of this Word here is keeping this world from burning, from frying. Okay, that's an incredible power that the Word has. Deuteronomy 6.24 says that God's laws give physical protection in life. Joshua 1 says that the Word we meditate prospers us in every area of life. Deuteronomy twenty nine nine says the same. Now, in our scientific age, we tend to poo-poo, those kinds of ideas, we think, what kind of a cause and effect relationship would there be there? That does not make sense to people, but there is a protective power in God's Word you can bank on much more keenly than you can bank on a Glock 45, okay? So my question is, are you skilled at protecting your family from demonic attack, for example, uh, through scriptural affirmation? Have you laid claim to God's promises of provision to protect your family from starvation? His promises of safety, his promises of angels and of other things. Have we harnessed the incredible power of God's Word? Now, a third thing that we see is that this Word is a divine power. Paul says, I commend you to God. Now, if that is the same thing as saying, I commend you, dot, 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 to the Word of His grace, then it means that the Word is by definition divine. These are not simply the words of men. And here's where some people get confused because they know that the 66 books of the Bible were written by men and uh, they have human characteristics that are in them and yet the Bible claims that those books are the very Word of God. How can that be? 3,808 times the Bible says every portion of Scripture is the very Word of God. How can that be? How can it have human characteristics and still be divine? And the best analogy that theologians can give is the incarnation of Jesus. And if you look at your outlines, I've given a a chart there that uh, will help you to see some of the parallels between the two. For example, Jesus was not two persons. This is a historical heresy with regard to the incarnation of Christ. He was not a human person and a divine person He was a divine person who took to Himself a human nature. So He's fully God, He's fully man, and yet He's still just one person. This person existed before the Incarnation was eternal, and yet in the Incarnation, this perfect person took to Himself human characteristics. So one person and two natures. Well, in the same way, God the Word, God the Son is the Word, right? He took to Himself human vessels to communicate His will to us. This eternal Word is incarnated, as it were, in human language, grammar, historical context, and yet without in any way giving up any aspect of its divine nature. Man's will did not originate any portion of the Scripture. Only God's will did. Now, let's look at some Scriptures so that we can see this. And I want you to turn with me to these. Turn first to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. <clears throat> And uh, verse 13. When you come to the Bible, you are indeed coming to God and you've got to reverence the Bible just as you would reverence God. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Notice that Paul says, this is not the word of men. Okay? Though it has a human nature, after all, Paul gave it, it does have a human nature. It is not the word of men, it's the word of God. He says, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So even though it's spoken by Paul, it's God's Word. I think it's appropriate to say that the Bible is a kind of incarnation. It's the Word in human form. Next, turn over to chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 8. He says, Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us His Holy Spirit. Okay, This is a logical implication of the previous verse. Uh, when, uh, even though Paul is a vehicle through whom these words are written, and even though these words contain human characteristics and emotions and grammar and human color, okay, they represent God, not man. And if you resist them, you're resisting God. Next, turn to Second Peter one, verses twenty through twenty-one. <clears throat> says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, or if you look in the margin, private origin, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, those three verses rule out several heretical views of the Scriptures. Second heresy listed in your chart is thinking that some of the Bible is divine and some of it's uh, human. This heresy says, okay, you can trust the divine portions, but you can't necessarily uh, trust the, the human portions of the Scripture. But notice that this verse says that prophecy never came by the will of man. Never. Though it is men who give it, and therefore it has human characteristics, it is divine in origin, just as Jesus was divine in origin. And just as Jesus' human will was in perfect total submission to the divine will, the wills of the prophets were completely controlled by God when He gave the Scriptures by inspiration. In fact, if you think of the Incarnation, I think you'll be able to correct every uh, heresy on Scripture out there. Look at the third comparison on the chart. Jesus was human, but His Incarnation kept Him totally without sin. And in the same way, the Bible was written by men, but the Spirit's informa- uh, inspiration kept those writers from making any errors uh, in, the, in the Scriptures. Now, to say that it would have been possible for Jesus to have sinned in any way is to deny the Incarnation. By the way, there's a huge debate in the Christian church on this. The peccability of Christ or the impeccability of Christ? believe me, we hold to the impeccability of Christ. He could not even theoretically have sinned. But the people who hold to the peccability of Christ, they say, well, the outcome was not sure because Jesus could have sinned or he could have fallen and even the angels are wondering and maybe even fearful, is he going to pull this through or not? That's absolutely false. Because of the incarnation, it was impossible even theoretically for Jesus to have sinned even though he was genuinely tempted. Likewise, to say that the Scriptures can be an error, even theoretically, is to make exactly the same incarnational error. God cannot make a mistake. Every jot and tittle of the Bible came from Him. Just as Jesus was not two persons, the Scripture should not be seen as a tension between the divine and the human. Both are united. They are indivisible. You cannot take them apart. However, just as each nature in Jesus is distinguishable, you can distinguish between the human grammars and vocabularies and the personalities of each of the various books. They have human characteristics, no doubt about it. But just as each nature was indivisible in Jesus, you cannot divide between the human and the divine characteristics of the Word of God, the divine origin. They are knit together perfectly. In fact, if you want a big word, there's... um, a phrase to describe Christ, the communicatio idiomatum, which means uh, the the communication of the divine nature. They're so tightly knit, even though you can distinguish divine and human natures, you can't divide them, that what can be affirmed of one nature can be affirmed of the whole person. For example, it says, God, who shed his own blood. Well, God doesn't have any blood. Well, yes, he does. As a person, Jesus is the God-man, right? Right. But what can be affirmed of one nature can be affirmed of the whole person. And uh, in, in a similar way, even the human aspects of this perfect revelation of the Bible are still called the Word of God. Does that make sense? The incarnation, I think, helps us to understand this. Now, just as resisting Jesus was indeed resisting God, resisting the Scriptures at any point is indeed resisting God. I, I, I have a pastor friend here in town we go round and round in circles on this and and uh he he just says well paul was wrong on that point who was dealing with feminist uh, issues paul was wrong on that point and i said if he's wrong on that point then the whole of the scriptures come into question the whole of the scriptures are the word of god and you cannot ascribe uh, errancy uh, to them um So, if we lose the infallibility of the scriptures, then we lose the infallibility of Christ. Both were incarnations. Now, I give another comparison, that of the docetist heresy. There are a group of heretics called the docetists in early uh, church history. What These guys, they thought that the body, anything physical was evil. We want to escape from these bodies, and they, they bought into this Greek dualism. And so, they thought it's just inconceivable that Jesus could have a body. It must have been an illusion. It looked like a body, but it really wasn't uh, a body. Uh, and so they're kind of denying the, the human characteristics and nature of Jesus. Well, in a similar way, there are some people who have said that the way that scriptures were given was that people were just passive you know, typewriters, you know, the dictation model of, uh, uh, of the inspiration of the scripture. Actually, that's the way that the Muslims see how the scriptures came, but that's not the biblical view. God takes the personalities, even the creativity of the human writers and completely incarnates His divine Word through their communication. Uh, On the other hand, just as Nestorians, that was another early church heresy, they made the mistake of saying that Jesus was merely a God-bearing man. Not the God-man, but a God-bearing man. Heretics today say that the Scriptures, yeah, the Scriptures contain the Word of God. No, no, no. Scriptures don't contain the Word of God. They are the Word of God. But they will say the Scriptures contain the Word of God or they become the Word of God during a flash of inspiration as you're having devotions. But you can't say that the Bible as a whole is the Word of God. Uh, that, that's really a Nestorian type of a heresy. That's called Bartianism. Bartianism is a rank heresy and it's all around us here in, in Omaha. It says that the Bible is not the Word of God, but it contains the Word of God. Apollinarianism denied that Jesus had a human spirit. They said that the Logos uh, replaced it. Well, that not only denies that Jesus is fully human, but it also makes nonsense of the Scriptures which speak of Christ's soul being crushed and sorrowing, being overwhelmed. It makes nonsense of Scriptures like Jesus saying there are certain things He does not know, like the timing of the second coming. Now, as God, He knows all things. And He did while He was here on earth. As God, He knew all things. As God, He had the power to do every miracle, but He chose as God the Son not to use that power, but as God the, as the God-man to depend upon the Spirit's power to do His miracles so that He could be a model for us on how we uh, should live. And, um, yeah, what point was I going to make with that? Um, um, so he, he knew all of those uh, things as God, um, but he chose to restrain his power. And so the church, I think, rightly rejected Apollinarianism. There was a, a genuine human spirit uh, in Jesus. But we make the same error if we do not recognize that Paul, by inspiration, records that he does not know whether he's going to make it to Rome, for example, um, uh, though God's Spirit moved Paul to write everything he wrote, God moved Paul to write in a way that showed his human character, emotions, limitations, but kept him without error. And so the bottom line is that the incarnation of Jesus is a great analogy for explaining the way the Scripture comes to us. The Word is eternal. It is divine. It was incarnated in human clothing, and that's what gives it power. Just as Jesus wasn't a human person that took on a divine nature, instead He was a divine person who took on a human nature, we should not think of the Scriptures as being human words that have some divine something added to them. No, no. It's God's Word that's incarnated in human form. How we phrase these things makes a big difference on the outcome. So when you come to Scripture, you must consciously think of yourself as coming to God Almighty, not simply to Paul, even though Paul is involved. To quote 1 Thessalonians 2.13 again, Paul said, When you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. That's why it's effective. That's why it's powerful. It's divine. Fourth point is that the Scripture is a gracious power. Verse 32 goes on to say, I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace. It is the Word of His grace. Psalm 19 says even the law portions of the Scripture are gracious. God can use those to convert the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting uh, the soul. And thus, Ernest Kevin, back in 1965, wrote a marvelous treatise summarizing the Puritan view of the law. It's called The Grace of Law. God can use the whole word. It's a gracious word. Steve Outerburn recorded the story of a Wycliffe Bible translator who had just translated the first chapters of Genesis, and he was planning to just distribute chapters to them as they got translated. So he distributed, that's the only portion of the Bible that they knew, and yet almost overnight their attitude toward women changed. And he was just blown away by this because he hadn't even addressed their horrible treatment of women. Outerburn says, without even hearing this concept developed, these people immediately grasped the ideas of equality between the sexes and began adjusting their behavior. The people heard, they believed, they obeyed, they changed, just like that. It was a gracious power of that Scripture working in them. This is why it is so shameful when pastors You know, we'll have somebody read a little portion of Scripture and then they'll give an entire sermon without ever referencing the Scripture one time. That is not preaching. That is not a sermon. And it doesn't have power because the Scripture is absent from that Word. This is why taking the Scriptures out of the public sphere in America has been such a disaster. It's not doctrine alone that changes behavior. It is Scripture that changes people. In fact, uh, people will just, you come up with new doctrine, you don't back it up with Scripture, they just think you're a nut. You know, it's different. It doesn't carry the power of God uh, behind it. This is why I won't ever distribute B.B. B. Warfield's book, uh, The Plan of Salvation. It's a marvelous summary of doctrine, but he didn't use a single Scripture to back any of it up. I think it's worthless, you know, when you do that. It does not have the Bible. This is why Locke's secularizing of biblical political theory so that it would be acceptable to the masses was such a disaster now yes he had some great concepts and yes he backed some of those concepts up with in one of the books you know with biblical references to show that but when he's you know giving to the masses uh, what he thinks what they ought to do in politics he leaves the scripture out that is a disaster as far as i'm concerned because it leaves out the grace of god i think we're destroying our effectiveness in politics Today, when we remove the power of the word of grace from our discussions, and we simply refer to moral majority and ethics and conservative principles and things like that, instead of referring to God Almighty and to His word and what God requires. Remember always, when you leave the word of grace out of your discussion, you're leaving grace out of your discussion. It's that simple. If you don't want people transformed, yeah, just leave the word out of it. But if you want our society transformed, you've got to be bringing the Word back into all of our society. Don't be embarrassed by it. The fifth characteristic that we see in God's Word is that it has a strengthening power to build people up. Verse 32 says, The Word of His grace which is able to build you up. If you simply read through the Bible every year, once a year, you're going to find yourself growing. You won't be able to help but grow if you will read through the Bible every year. Um, If you read the book Self-Confrontation by Broger, which is absolutely packed with Scripture on how we can grow, you cannot help but be changed. I was a pastor when I went to the conference that went through all of the Scriptures in Broger's book. I came away having grown incredibly over a one-week period of time. Michael Billister was a Bible distributor who... I went to a small village in Poland just before the outbreak of uh, World War II. He had to leave because the war was, um, uh, they said everybody had to leave. He had one Bible. He gave it to a villager and he said, read this. And that villager, reading the, the Bible, got converted and he excitedly began to share with some of the other villagers. And by, uh, by the time Billister came back in 1940, 200 people had come to Christ as a result of reading the Scripture. So, he came, they want him to preach, and he said, you know, why don't some of you quote some Scriptures from from this Bible that you have? Uh, quote some Scriptures before we have the preaching. Well, one man stood up and he says, well, how much of the Bible do you want us to recite? Apparently, they had been memorizing vast portions of, uh, of Scriptures during the short time that uh, he was away. Um, Let me just uh, give you uh, some examples. Thirteen people knew Matthew, Luke, and half of Genesis. Another person had memorized Psalms during just a small time that he had the Bible in his cottage and others are clamoring, knocking on his door. I want to look at the Bible too. So I only got the Psalms down and somebody else memorizes another portion because they knew... They might not be able to get that Bible in their hands, and they saw this Bible is such a precious possession. So they were memorizing like crazy. There were others who had memorized even huger chunks of Scripture. But what he soon discovered was that because they were hiding God's Word in their hearts, they were so transformed that this was a congregation, had no pastor, had nothing. They were strong in the Lord. We don't need tons of programs, we need more Scripture. We need Scripture in our lives. You cannot fully be built up as a church, as an individual, as a family, if you're not immersed in the Word of God. The old uh, church fathers said, we must swim in the Scriptures. We've, We've got to be immersed in the Scriptures. And so, saturate your family in it. Paul commends you to the Word of grace. The sixth feature of the Word is that it has a securing power to guarantee an inheritance. Verse 32 again, is able to build you up and give you an inheritance. The Bible is able to give you an inheritance. So every promise of the Scripture is like a, a check, a bank check that you can cash you know, from your spiritual bank account. Ephesians one three says you've got a massive bank account In heaven, But until you know the Scriptures, you don't have the faith to claim what is in that bank account. And until you make affirmations of faith with your mouth, you make affirmations of faith, you're not going to bring any of those things from heaven down here to earth. And so this Bible is not an empty, powerless book. It is able to build you and it is able to give you an inheritance. And when we neglect it, we do so robbing ourselves of incredible treasures. I have a Reader's Digest story by John T. Spock. He tells about his son leaving for Duke University. And he gave his son a Bible. He says, you're going to be facing all kinds of difficulties in university. Read this Bible. Read it. Read it. And his son promised that he would read it. And uh, partway through the semester, the son writes home. He says, Dad, I really could use some money. Could you send me some money? And his dad wrote a letter and he said, uh, Why don't you read this Scripture and this Scripture? And uh, you'll find it really helpful. And the son said, yeah, I'm reading the Scripture, but could you really send me some money? I have uh, need of money. And the dad just wrote the same back to his son. Well, partway through, the son comes home, and uh, the parents told the son, I know you're not reading the Scripture. Well, How do you know? He says, because we've put huge bills of money into that Bible, and that was the, the places we were referencing. It will be a help if you will read the Scripture. So here, he had all kinds of wealth that um, he was not using. And we rob ourselves of far greater treasures when we fail to read and memorize and claim the words of the Bible. The modern church is a powerless church in part because it's a scriptureless church. Now, you might say, we've got lots of Bibles. Yes, we have more Bibles per Christian capita in America than any other country in the world, and yet we have less Scripture knowledge in America about the Bible than most underdeveloped countries that have a hard time getting a hold of the Scripture. I mean, that t- tells something about us. If you're powerless, this may be one of the reasons why... Uh, you are, are powerless. The last power that you will find in the Bible, in, at least in this verse, is a sanctifying power. Paul said, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Jesus said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. John 17, verse 17. You will never grow in your sanctification until you turn on the switch of the Scriptures. It's got to flow into your life. George Mueller, incredible prayer warrior, he once confessed, the first three years after conversion, I neglected the Word of God. Since I began to search it diligently, the blessing has been wonderful. I have read the Bible through 100 times and always with increasing delight. Uh, ben Luters was telling me three weeks ago that uh, he has found that when he brings Scripture into his discussions with his friends, it seems that there is a, there is a difference there in terms of people finding benefit and, and finding change. He's found the same in his own life when he has accountability partners, you know, or trying to uh, work with him. And they'll give him a Scripture dealing with a particular sin. He says it's in the reading of that, even when he doesn't want to read it, that he finds power in his life. It's the Scriptures that have the power uh, to sanctify us. And so my concluding exhortation to you is to realize the value of the Word of God by looking at its power. Ask God to give you an incredible hunger for His Word. Evangelist Robert L. Sumner, in a a book titled The Wonders of the Word of God, uh, talked about the incredible hunger that this one man in Kansas City had uh, for reading the Scriptures. The problem was... He had been in an explosion, lost the sight of both eyes, lost his hands. He wanted to read using Braille. And he had heard that there was a woman in England who had learned to read Braille by touching the Braille, you know, has little raised knobs for the letters, touching that to the lips. He tried it and tried it, but the explosion had damaged the nerve endings on his lips. They were so numb, he couldn't make out anything on the letters. But one time, uh, his tongue touched some letters and he dawned on him can read with my tongue and so he started to do that and by the time Sumner had written his book this guy had read through the Bible four times with his tongue four times he just had an insatiable appetite for the Word of God because he knew it was a treasure and it's not until people are robbed of the treasure of the Word sometimes that they begin to realize why did I not take it more seriously? If if communists were to take over America and they were to take confiscate every Bible that we have, how much would you have stored in your head? How seriously do you take the Word of God, treasure the Bible? I commend you to its care, its protection, its provision, and its transforming power. Now, I think we've only scratched the surface of what the blessing the Bible is, but let me end by reading a, a summary written by an unknown author. He, or she as the case may be, said, This book is the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here, paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure." Follow its precepts and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to a resurrected life in Christ. Yes, to glory itself for eternity. Value the Word of God. Amen. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it does have power, that it does not return to You void. Sometimes it is sent to harden and to judge people. Other times it is sent uh, to uh, uh, bring new life. But we thank You, Father, that Your general purpose in history uh, in the New Covenant is that of the increase of Christ's kingdom and of peace, there will be no end. Increase Your kingdom, O Lord, in our lives this day. Increase Your kingdom in our church and in the churches of this city, of this nation, and of this world. We pray that the power of Your Word would be transformational, turning us inside out for Your glory. Father, be glorified in our responses to Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.